You turn with me now to our New Testament text, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your word is a limitless, a boundless, bottomless depth of knowledge and of truth and of wisdom. And Lord, we never do come to the end of it. And even in these passages that seem to be the most straightforward, Lord, we recognize our own frailties and our blindness and ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes and that you would enable us to receive the truth as you've given it to us, that we might learn truly of Christ, that we might learn of ourselves, and that we might know what we ought to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come to this little section in Luke chapter 18. Let the little children come, verses 15 to 17. Now, let's not forget the context here, of course, because this comes right after the prayers of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and it was a picture of one who is justified before God. Right? Who is justified before God? Not the self-righteous Pharisee with all of his list of accomplishments and ways in which he differentiates himself from other common men. But the one that, who knows he is a sinner is convinced he is a sinner, is convicted by God he is a sinner, and simply asks a gracious God for mercy. This is the one who goes home justified, saved. But this, of course, is no small thing. It's a major issue. This teaching, this concept that I've just tried to explain in a few words, it runs counter to all the default settings of the human heart, and therefore it needs to be said more than once. People are blind on this issue. People are absolutely stuck on something other than, uh, completely else than that. In, In life, 
You don't get something for free. You must earn it. You must work for it. And we assume that salvation must surely be the same way. The kingdom of God is something to be merited. It is something that is to be earned in contradistinction to others who are lesser than you. You reach out and get it, and the others don't. And this is so much in our hearts that the Lord continues to chip away and to chip away at these things. And so we have... First, the, the parable of the, of the tax collector and the Pharisee. But now we have the story, not a parable, but the story of something happened in the providence of God that illustrates these particular things. And we have helpless children being brought to the Lord Jesus Christ in order that they might be touched, in order that they might be blessed of him. And Jesus says, this is a picture of what salvation is like. This is the way people come to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he says, unless you come in this sort of way as a helpless child, dependent entirely upon me, dependent upon my grace for your salvation, then you shall certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course... There are some things of particular interest to parents and children, some questions to ponder. For instance, was it a good thing that these parents brought their children to Jesus? Was that a a good thing? Was that okay? And, And if it's so, if it was a good thing, why? In what sense did these children benefit any more than any child brought up in paganism? But beyond what we should do to enter the kingdom, how we enter, And beyond even whatever implications it might have for us as parents or as children, supremely we have a picture of the grace of God in Christ. This is what the plaque says, sir. We we want to see Jesus. This is what this Bible is about. We want this is all about Christ. And supremely in all these things we see a gracious Lord Jesus Christ. And that too is a subject far too expansive for any single sermon. I've probably mentioned it once or twice, but it's never enough because there's always more. The the grace of God is so amazing, so huge. It is far beyond any single sermon, but something continually to gain, gain knowledge in. Because whatever we think about the grace of God, it is greater and more wonderful than that. So the title this morning is The Gracious Arms of Christ. The gracious arms of Christ with these three points. First, hopeful parents. Second, skeptical disciples. And third, gracious Lord. Well, first, hopeful parents. In verse 15, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. They being, obviously, the parents And what do we know about the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we know about his touch? Well, to the leper in Matthew 8, 3, Jesus put out his hand and touched him. He said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he he, he reaches out his hand and he touches him and says, I am willing to be cleansed. And the leprosy is gone. That's the touch. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Or later on in that same chapter in Matthew 8. So this is a woman with the flow of blood, or sorry, the, the, the woman with the fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. And then also then in the very next chapter, Matthew 9.20, there's a woman with the flow of blood. And here it's not Jesus touching, it's a woman. 
Suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched not even him, but the the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. And you say, well, now they've gone too far, okay? If there's a leper, he needs to be touched to be cleansed. Somebody with a fever, if you ask, you can, you can get this. But now this woman, without even asking, is going up and just touching the hem of the garment. She's not going to get what she wants. But oh no, the grace of God exceeds even your expectation. And what you know, even touching the hem of his garment works. And the gracious flow of power goes to her and stops that flow of blood. She gets what she came for as well. And so we know this touch. We know this touch of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is all-powerful. It does all things. It extends grace and power to those who come for it. The only difference here is that these children are healthy. That's the difference, right? These, these children are not on death's door. They do not have some chronic illness. They don't seem to have anything. They don't even seem to have a cold. Yet they've been brought What for? Well, a blessing. A spiritual blessing. They don't have a physical need. That's not their issue. They're not physically sick. Their parents are bringing them there quite obviously, uh, uh, self-evidently, for a spiritual blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the the simple question is, is this a good thing for the parents to do? Is that okay? Is that a good thing? I hope that we'd all have to say that it was a good thing. I hope we'd all have to say that it was much better than bringing them, say, into the arms of a demon. Because, you know, that's terribly what they actually did, some of them in the Old Testament, with Moloch. This horrible demonic figure that they, they, bur- they heated up into burning temperature and they, they placed the, their children into the arms of this demonic idol to kill them. And even today we know that Something like more than one in five children are brought into the arms of the abortionist to kill them. Now, I hope then that we can say that bringing these children into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ was better than that. Certainly better than that. And actually, the biblical principle is precisely that we ought to bring our children to the Lord. It's not just a permissible thing. It is a good and a right and a thing commanded by parents that they might bring their children not into the hands of a demon, not into the hands of the world, not into the hands of the state, but into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a good and right thing for them to do. And what is more, it was an act of faith. Okay? These hopeful, believing should they surely appear to believe in Christ? If they were of those who rejected Christ, they would not have done that. We know that by this time, those who had any expressed any kind of faith or allegiance to Christ were being tossed out of the synagogue. This was a courageous act for these parents to do. It was an act of faith. And so they themselves seemed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is more, they had a promise regarding their children, didn't they? You see, because faith doesn't happen apart from any kind of knowledge, right? There has to be some sort of knowledge, some sort of promise that that we're acting on, and they had a promise regarding their children. Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant 
between me and you and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Okay? They were acting as best they knew how on this promise. And Jesus does not begin to say, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. I know I said that, but I didn't really mean that. doesn't begin to say that. He welcomes them with open arms, these hopeful parents acting in faith, bringing their children to him. But secondly, if that was the hopeful parents, which we can be thankful for, secondly, we have skeptical disciples. Because when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. You see, these, these disciples were a little bit skeptical about this situation. And we, again, we have to ask the question, why? What brought on this rebuke of these parents? We have to ask this because we know that Jesus had not left them instructions saying, don't let anyone bring little children to me. So it, it could, we have to think, what is their reason here? It could have maybe been because of themselves. Maybe they, maybe, or what they thought about Jesus, or maybe something in the action itself. I don't know. Maybe, for instance, they were just being prideful and self-important. They were trying to act important by putting up the velvet rope in front of the boss. I don't know. And, and maybe, probably more likely, they thought Jesus was too important for this because he has important people to see and important things to do. And it all goes back to our, the, their misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom of God. If it was indeed a political and a cultural kingdom, this kind of thing did nothing whatsoever to advance it. All right? These little children can't help out here. So Jesus has more important things to do than this. Now, there's probably some truth in that. Probably. But let me say that they didn't, in, in defense of the disciples, they didn't react that way. When Jesus, when, when sick people were brought to him, all right? When the paralytic was brought to him, he didn't react that way. Even, even when the most desperate and poor and helpless and powerless in society were brought, they did not react that way. And so I think actually it's because they didn't think there was any purpose to it, right? They can see the idea even of, a, of a, 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 what would seem to be in society a worthless man like this paralytic being brought or the blind, or the the leper, or any of those things, at least they see the need, and they see the material and the the tangible benefit of Jesus healing them, but they cannot see any point to parents bringing their little children for, for a blessing. They can't see it, and they reject it as pointless. That's what I think. I thought it was a pointless waste of time. Those on death's door, yes, but what is this going to do for these healthy children? Because, you see, if the kingdom of God... Is about works. These babies couldn't perform them, so it's pointless. If the kingdom of God is about our initiative, these babies had none. Okay, so again, it's pointless. But what about if the kingdom of God is about God's gracious initiative and our passive reception of a gift? Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, there is a point somewhere here both for the children themselves and also for everyone around who see this illustration of how it is that we're saved. Well, that brings us into our third point, a gracious Lord. Hopeful parents, skeptical disciples, 
but gracious Lord. Verse 16, Jesus called to them and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And the picture there is as Jesus called them to him. He is, the, the word implies the idea that they've been shooed away by the disciples, but Jesus, come on, come on. Jesus calls them back to himself in his grace. Now, let me just say, as we speak of a gracious Lord, we have to understand that grace is not a commodity. We sometimes speak of being saved by grace, but it's not like here's this water and you're saved by it and it's separable from me. It's not like that. It's not a commodity by which we have it. It is a gracious God through whom we are saved, a a God who is bestowing, a God who is expressing a gracious attitude towards sinners. And that grace of Jesus Christ is illustrated in several ways. Okay? He says, as I say, first of all, let the little children come to me. Because once again, Christ is more gracious than the Pharisees. You'd say that, wouldn't you? Matthew twenty-three, thirteen: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of, God, of heaven against men, and you neither go in yourselves, they weren't going into, through Christ, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And they put up doors around those who would otherwise be coming to Christ. Christ doesn't do that. Rather, he opens the door wide open, as he says in Revelation 3.8, I know your works. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. He, guard, he not only opens the door, he guards it open, and you, you dare not try to close that door as Christ has opened it to them. So he's more gracious than the Pharisees, But I would say even more so than the Pharisees, we see that his threshold for what he is willing to bear with, what he is willing to grant, exceeds even that of the disciples themselves. They begrudged this, but he welcomed them. They didn't have any agenda against Christ. They were his followers. They represent at least the view of common people like you and I, if not better than that. They begrudged, but Jesus welcomed his grace exceeds that of the, Pharisee, of the Pharisees and also of the disciples. But beyond saying, let them come, there's a, there's a permission. Beyond the permission, he goes on to say, do not. He now forbids them to forbid. Do not forbid them, or rather, do not hinder them is a better way of putting it. I forbid you to hinder these children coming to me because it is not merely the absence of prohibition that Jesus is speaking of. They should not present any roadblock, any problem, any obstacle to the children coming to him. He says in Luke eleven fifty two. maybe you remember, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. Same word. Don't be like the lawyers, you disciples, and hinder those who are coming to me. Do not hinder. They and all who present the least obstacle to those who are coming to Christ will certainly be held accountable for it. Don't forbid them. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen beyond this. They can come. In fact, you better not forbid them. You better let them. And then he goes on to say, for of such is the kingdom of God. These are not skin of their teeth examples on the margins Right? They're not over, they're okay, 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 maybe just this once we'll let the little child come to me. He's saying, actually, these are prime examples of precisely how it is that people enter the kingdom of heaven. In complete contrast to, say, the rich young ruler, 
Let me just say that the rich young ruler, when people have an idea of who is it that can come into the kingdom of heaven, that's who they have in mind, right? But Jesus says in Matthew 19, 23, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Because they had, in their mind, this rich young ruler was it. He was the one who provided the example of the one who could enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be able to get there? One with resources, a man with great learning, a man at the height of his powers. He could do what it took to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said these things can actually be a problem, a serious problem, so much so that those who who have these great advantages in life, sometimes they're the hardest It's harder for them to come into the kingdom because the nature of the kingdom is by grace. It is not by works. If it was by works, it would be the rich young ruler and he would win and you'd lose. But it's not by works. It's by grace only, by grace alone. And because of that, those who have such great advantages are disadvantaged in this. Actually, You want to see what the prototypical person that gets into heaven looks like? Jesus says, it's not that rich young ruler. It's the helpless baby in my arms. Take a look. That's a picture of what it's like to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, he goes on to say in verse 17, not merely that these are permitted, not merely that these are examples, but he goes on to say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. It's not the skin of the teeth example on the margin. He's saying you have to enter precisely as this little child. Now let me first explain what this is not saying. Okay, He's not saying that little children are innocent. We know that some people who may not be used to everything the Bible says, oh, I see, if this is the example, it's because little children are innocent angels. But that's not the Bible's teaching. That's not the view of Christ who authored the Bible. And it's not true, is it, children? You're not perfectly innocent. In fact, Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. And we know that the doctrine of original sin says that we have both the guilt and the corruption, meaning that it has corrupted all of us and leads to further sin of our father Adam right from conception. So what what is the picture then that's being painted here? It's that they were brought to Christ, not on their own power or their initiative. That wasn't their decision. That wasn't their good idea that they were smarter, more faithful, more wise than everybody else in the world. They were brought passively. That's by the the, the way the Lord says we're brought, right? He says, unless the father draw them, they will not be saved. Faith, in fact, is a gift of God. It is not of yourself that you should boast. God has given, if, you're, if you believe, it is because God has given you that gift. And then what happens once they're there? They're received by Christ, not because of their merit. He doesn't, Jesus is not asking them, uh, he, he's not examining them for, for their gold and their silver or their, their accomplishments. He doesn't ask for their CV of these babies. What have you accomplished in your brief lifetime, child? They're received not because of merit, but because of his great grace. Pure, complete grace. Not a single thing added to it. There's nothing on that CV. 
They're received by grace. And what about they themselves? What is their perspective? They're simply there receiving a gift of Christ. Simply there receiving the gift of Christ humbly, totally dependent upon him. Not exalted, not self-righteous. Just receiving a gift. That's all. That's the picture of how someone enters into the kingdom of heaven. As a little child being received into the gracious arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. The obvious first application of this is to say you ought to come to Jesus that way. As a child, come to the gracious arms of Christ just as a child. It's so, so simple. Sometimes I have to ask myself, what are the reasons why anyone would not do this? Why would you not? Well, I guess some people would say, I don't believe that there's a problem. Well, I don't know. I I wish I could say that I believed you if you say that there's no problem, but I think you do know there's a problem. I think people know good and well that there is a judgment to come. I think people know good and well that there is a hell to pay in eternity to come. You know this in your heart. The Lord has set eternity in the hearts of man, and you know that there is judgment to come. You know there's a problem. Well, and then maybe you say, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm not good enough to believe. Well, you're absolutely right. You're not good enough. And that is precisely your qualification for salvation. If you try to be like the rich young ruler, did he get what he wanted? No. No, he came and he, he wanted to know how he could inherit eternal life. He had all the advantages. He was better than you, I think. Knew far more scripture, had more resources, did more good works. Probably half of us put together. And yet he went away sad because he was unwilling to be bad enough, right? You say you're not good enough, that's right. That's your qualification for salvation, that you come on the basis of God's grace. Have I not just said that Jesus is gracious? He is. And you come into the gracious arms of Christ and you embrace him in faith and you are saved. And that is the end of the story. There is nothing to earn. Do you receive it as if I were to bring some little gift to one of these children or just giving a gift and they receive it? And that's the way that we receive the kingdom of heaven. So you ought to come to Christ as a little child. And secondly, I would say you need to bring your children to Jesus. Okay? In various ways, I mean this. I I mean, of course, in the covenant promises that we've just spoken of. And for a moment, just we've heard that, that verse that I've mentioned that maybe these parents were clinging to in Genesis 17 or maybe in Deuteronomy 6. And, and just for a moment, let's just believe that it's true. Just believe it's true that God wants to be the God of your children. Don't you want that to be true? Believe it. Cling to that promise. Cling to it. You say it doesn't make sense. You say it doesn't work that way. Well, as a parent, I say this. You have nothing else. You have no other promise. You have nothing. Why should God save your child any more than, than the, the pagan far, far away from any hearing of the word of God? Why? There's only one reason. 
And that's the, covenant, the gracious covenant promises of God which he extends. And those are the promises that you must cling to as a parent. You have nothing else. And yes, I would say then, to go along with it, yes, in baptism. You know what? The covenant baptism did not exist. We would wish that it would. Okay? We would make something up to appropriate it, to, to approximate it. Okay? And, we, and that happens in Baptist churches. It's called a baby dedication. Because we have this need, we have this idea, we have this inclination as Christian parents that we want to dedicate our children to God. Christ isn't here, so we bring them in some way. If there wasn't covenant baptism, we would make something up. You want to bring your infant child, your infant child to Jesus for a blessing? You want to do that so they can be marked out for him by, by him for good and for, for blessing? You can. It's called covenant baptism. Bring them in terms of the covenant promises. Bring your children to Jesus in baptism and bring them in terms of church. That's why we don't take children out of the service. Okay? I know it's counterintuitive, and I know in our culture the place to put children is where there are cartoons and where there are toys. But Christ is present here, here in his word and his sacraments. And if you want to bring Jesus, if you want to bring your child to Jesus for a blessing, you bring them here because this is where Jesus is. It's where he is. It means we tolerate the consequences of that, right? Yes, parents should be conscientious and the child is causing some major distraction. They can be taken out. We have these speakers and all the rest of it. Uh, we can still be in the hearing of the word of God. But as for the minor irritations and distractions and so forth, we bear with it. Even as Christ, we accept these consequences. And as children, by the way, that means you need to pay attention. Is it a challenge? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, but Christ is here in his word. You don't get a veggie tales or something like that. You get the real sermon, the real sermon for your parents, for your grandparents, for your great-grandparents. From the greatest to the least, you get the real deal because Christ is present here in it. It's a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful privilege. But yes, it comes with cost for you as well. You have to pay attention so that you might receive the blessing that the Lord would have for you. Bring your children in terms of church. Bring your children in terms of nurture and admonition. That's what what Deuteronomy chapter 6 is about. Children are designed to be brought to a God. You know this. Okay, there is no neutrality. You're bringing them as a parent to some God. They are sinners, yes. But young children are predisposed by God to observe the religion of their parents. Who are your gods? And we will worship them. That's the heart of a young child. Who are your gods? We will worship them. And therefore, if you're worshiping idols, they will know it and they will follow you in it. No, your job is to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord And let me say that this is your job. This is the thing that God is going to hold you accountable for. Thankfully, you don't have 10 things that you can fail at as a parent that God really cares about. Okay, because otherwise you'd say, well, I've got this one and this thing and this thing and this thing and I don't know which one. And I'm going to have to pick one to, to, 
No, God gives you one thing to fail at as a parent. Only one! To bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and that is it. And you can rest at night on the basis of whether you've done that one thing or not. Do they have to be world-class athletes? No. Do they have to be world-class musicians? No. Do, do they have to be world-class in academics? No. We, we should absolutely seek to enable our, our children to be useful in the kingdom of God, and we do those things. But you know what? In the end of the day, there is one thing by which God want, uh, demands that, that Christian parents do for their children to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's it. Wonderfully simple. We bring them in the covenant. We bring them in terms of baptism. We bring them in terms of the church right here in nurture and admonition and, yes, in prayer. Because you say, I've failed in every one of that list. But there's one thing that you haven't, and you can never yet, while there is breath in you and them, fail of utterly, and that is prayer. They are never, ever beyond the reach of the Christian parents' prayers. And even, yes, even beyond the grave for us. We don't know what's going to happen in the years to come. If we, pre, if we go before them, who knows what our prayers might have done. There are so many stories, aren't there, in the Christian histories of how the prayers of parents have in the end prevailed to bring those children to Christ long after the death of their parents. You bring that child to Jesus in prayer. Because he is gracious. You know, all these things only work. The only reason why it works is because here's his gracious arms ready to receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed for those gracious arms of a gracious Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of a gracious triune God. And Heavenly Father, he, well, Christ exceeds our own standards of grace, the standards of any Pharisee, the standards of any disciple, even, Lord. We are thankful for such great grace as we see in this passage. And gracious Heavenly Father, how we pray that we ourselves would come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he with his open, gracious arms, that we would embrace him in faith, bringing nothing of ourselves, no, no works, no accomplishments, Lord, knowing that the only way that we come is precisely as a child receiving a gift. And Heavenly Father, we pray as parents that we likewise would bring our children to this gracious Lord Jesus Christ, that he, that he might receive them and that they might be blessed. Lord, we are thankful for such amazing, blessed promises as we have, and we cling to them as we have nothing else to cling to. And Lord, we ask that there might be many stories in this place, in this church, Lord, of how you have been so amazingly gracious to parents and to children. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.